0: Hey, my name's Quinn.
1: My name's Lindsay.
0: Welcome to Viral, a bi-weekly podcast about public health and the important people who help protect the public's health. Um, what's going on in the Viral universe, Lindsay?
1: Well, first of all, we have stickers.
0: Ooh, mama.
1: And they're really cool. Um... The more important thing is why we got stickers, which was because we were invited to go to the World Social Marketing Conference in Washington DC. Ooh,
0: I just thought we liked, you know, guerrilla artwork and we put stickers on things.
1: I mean that was probably like sixty-three percent of like it. Like but...
0: the bottom of my skateboard.
1: Sure. And <laughs> Sure. You and your punk That's what graffiti artist is right? Yes, that's exactly what those kids are doing today.
0: Yeah. So when is the the thing?
1: It is March 16th and 17th in Washington, D.C.
0: What Lindsay meant to say was May. May 16th and 17th. Okay, back to the show. All right. uh,
1: yeah, so we'll be interviewing speakers and other prominent people that work in social marketing and in public health about different topics. So if you're there and you're, you know, wanting a sticker or it's wanting the idea to...
0: that someone would listen to this and also be at the World Social Marketing Conference is so cool, but it's... also probably something that's only exists in my dreams.
1: I don't think it's just in your dreams. I think it's a reality. I think you're selling yourself short. Oh. So, uh, yeah. So come and and see us. Get a sticker. Uh, And and if you don't
0: know what social marketing is, you will soon.
1: Yes, you will. Yes, you will.
0: Whether you like it or not. Yes. Um, Also, we, again, are at viral-pod.com. And we are also on Facebook and Twitter. Um, And so we're there You can contact us You can leave us feedback We've gotten some interesting suggestions so far From listeners about future topics And so keep those coming Um, Also, please review us on iTunes And wherever you are listening to this If you can review it, that would be great Uh, Public health relies on data And public health podcasts do too So Please review us and review us honestly, because we want to know uh, how we're doing and uh, how we can make this show even better.
1: Yes, please. And actually, because we have these really sweet stickers, if you subscribe to our podcast through our uh, website, meaning that every time we release an episode, you'll get an automatic email to let you know that a new episode has been released. You, my lucky friend, will get a sticker. Me? (gasps) yeah you as long as you tell us where you live and stuff because otherwise I don't know how you're going to get it unless you come to DC and see us then but uh, so we have a hundred stickers that we're going to be giving out to the first hundred people that subscribe on our website so please visit us so you can get the sweet swag yes and there will be t-shirts down the line too yeah so everyone loves a t-shirt
0: all right so um, now what are we talking about today well, before we get into our discussion, I wanted to give it some context. Um, like Donna Peterson talked about in episode three, public health is both a discipline of science as well as a goal for humanity to achieve. I said I was going to steal that, and here I go, because I really like that.
1: Wow. Klepto. <laughs>
0: With that in mind, many public health departments and large agencies like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, National Institutes of Health, state and local health departments, and the World Health Organization organize their efforts into two main buckets. Number one, cross-cutting thematic issues like policy communications, epidemiology, and laboratory science. And two, specific diseases and conditions grouped together by similar characteristics. In this episode we are going to talk about one of the biggest ones in the past 30 years, HIV and AIDS. So whenever you hear HIV and AIDS, they're often grouped together like that. But in reality, they are two separate but related issues. HIV stands for human immunodeficiency virus. And if left untreated, it can lead to the disease known as AIDS, which stands for acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. Again, they're related, but they're actually kind of two different things. So, unlike some viruses, the human body is unable to get rid of HIV completely. Once you get it, you have it for life. So what does it do to people? It essentially weakens your immune system, making you more likely to get infections and infection-related cancers. And that's actually how it was first discovered. Rare forms of infection-related cancers were popping up at rates way above what we normally see. And it wasn't because the cancers were becoming more prevalent, it was this virus. No cure for HIV currently exists at the taping of this episode, but with proper treatment and medical care, it can be controlled. The most common and effective form of treatment is called antiretroviral therapy, and it's literally a lifesaver. The only way to know for sure if you have HIV is to get tested. Sometimes it stays hidden for a while, where you might be infectious and you can spread it to others. Testing is simple and available at many different places in your community.
1: Awesome. That There's was... like
0: your two-minute <clears throat> background of what we're going to talk about.
1: That was perfect. I feel like I learned something. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, I'm just going to talk a little bit about my experience working um, as an HIV-AIDS case manager. Um, because we hear a lot about statistics. Uh, we have a lot of great, you know infographics of, you know, infection rates and how many people, you know, currently have HIV and don't know it. But, you know, I think what sometimes is missed is the human story. You know, um, I, as a, you know, straight woman, you know, never really considered HIV to be something that, you know, could affect me. And while I am HIV negative, Um, It has significantly impacted my life because I know people who are positive, and I feel that we're all a lot more susceptible to HIV than what we really think we are, because regular people like you and I end up getting the disease, you know. Um, Similarly to uh, the misconceptions around the disease when it first came out, people still really think of it as a gay disease, unfortunately. But... You know, we're seeing increases in infection rates in young women.
0: Especially in the rural
1: South. Yes, which is where we're at. So, um, you know, I think one of the things that is important is talking about the human story behind HIV. um, And, you know, to bring it home, to help people realize that it's not just, you know, this thing from the 1980s and there was like some great movies that came out about it and there was that kid named Ryan White and you know it's it's more than just that it's something that people live with today and people still contract today so
0: while it is more or less now a manageable condition like you know diabetes or whatever like something that you can live with yeah there are still groups of people who don't know they have it yep There are still groups of people who, for some reason, um, don't care that they have it or that can't access treatment like getting the drugs they need, or because they live in a rural area, there's only one doctor in the radius of 200 Mm -hmm. miles from them. And so, those are issues that we're seeing now where, um, you know, the affluent, educated, HIV positive patient more or less has the same lifespan as someone without the disease, with negative. But when you take in other factors like education um, and, and
1: healthcare access, healthcare
0: access, and those, you know, insurance, socioeconomic, socioeconomic status, status yep. language, yep. Um, living. Situation, mental health. Yes. That's the population now that we really need to do a better job of reaching.
1: I totally agree. And that was one of the things that I really took away being a case manager. You know, a lot of the clients that I had were older gay men, you know, so while many of them, you know, were doing a great job managing their HIV, you know, they were fairly healthy. A lot of them had like we said, similar problems to other people that weren't infected. You know, they had diabetes or, you know, heart disease or whatever. Um, You know, I also saw a lot of people with mental health issues or substance abuse issues, which, you know, could have been the cause, the risk factor that helped them, you know, become infected, Um, but also continued, you know, past infection and also like, It prevented them from managing their HIV in a way that would have helped them get their viral load down. And when I say viral load, I mean the amount of virus in their blood, which is one way we keep track of how well a person is doing while they're um, during the HIV treatment and management. So, um, another thing What was
0: was being a caseworker like or a case manager like?
1: So, I was very new. Um, I had just, I graduated in the past year with my bachelor's in public health and I thought I was going to save the world and everything was going to be awesome. Um, and it, while it was a very fulfilling job, it was very hard because a lot of the clients that I had were high acuity, meaning that, you know, yes, they may be managing their HIV, but they also suffered from other things. So like I had said before, mental health issues, substance abuse, um, And some of them were new, you know, they had just been diagnosed. So they were still going through that process of coming to terms with being positive and then also navigating this system of treatment and care and um, assistance, right? So, like I said before, a lot of my clients were older gay men. um, And one of the things that I thought was interesting was a lot of them felt forgotten about, you know, a lot of them had lost a lot of people in their lives. And, um, so they were still dealing with a form of PTSD. You know, they really had felt like they had gone through a war and didn't really get the kind of mental health, uh, treatment that they really needed to process all of that. And so luckily our organization had mental health counselors on staff that they could access. The other piece of that too is, you know, there's so many competing priorities, right. In public health and, you know, and politically. So, You know, if HIV wasn't on, like, let's say, that political landscape, a lot of them felt like, well, no one cares, Mm -hmm. you know, especially if they're an older gay man. It's just like, yeah, well, you were, you know, you got this in the 80s, 90s, and, you know, this is just what you're living with now, and your, you know, your care is treated for, and your, or your, I'm sorry, your care is uh, paid for, and so is your medication, so, like, you should be thankful for that. And it's like, well, you know...
0: It's like, so hard.
1: Exactly. And like most things, it's complicated, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, you know, you had people that were aging and aging with HIV is different from aging without HIV. You have neuropathy, meaning that, you know, you have aches and pains in your joints that are related to HIV. And sometimes if they had an AIDS diagnosis, they were dealing with other symptoms, Right. Um, And if you are diabetic, let's say you're diabetic and you have HIV, that's hard on your body, you know, because the medication that you're taking for HIV isn't necessarily super great for you. But you managing that on top of managing diabetes is really difficult. Especially if you have wasting, how do you deal with that?
0: Yeah. So so did you feel like you were adequately trained to help with some of that stuff, or that you know you could have gotten a, a better Education to you know help people navigate the system, or is it something that you really just have to be thrown into the fire and learn on the job?
1: Um, I think it's one of those things that you have to be thrown into the job, especially the the bureaucracy piece because it varies from state to state. Uh, one of course thing, I, it does. yeah, of course <laughs> it does. So I mean, God. there are federal programs, right? Ryan White is a federal program, but you know the way states. And some agencies even manage those funds and how they do case management can vary from agency to agency. One thing I do wish that I would have gotten more training on was trauma-informed care because I dealt with a lot of people that had gone through traumatic experiences. You know, I, I had women who had found out they were positive because their boyfriend or partner had given them the disease and now, you know, their partner was blaming them for the infection but refusing to get treated or refusing to get uh, tested. And so it was a domestic violence situation. I had people that were, you know, I mean, on really hard drugs like meth or heroin, you know, so the social work side was the part that I really wish I had some training on and yeah. knowing and- how to manage those things. Cause it's very hard for someone who's just like, I, I don't know, you know, obviously I can refer you to people, but the process from me to that referral, there's that gap that's really important to really help kind of shepherd that person you know to the referral so and that's where unfortunately a lot of people fall through the cracks so mm. so yeah I uh, it was really my first taste of social work um, and doing individual intervention so that really I think is good I think that actually everyone should have an experience like that because you really see how complicated these issues yeah. are at the individual level
0: and I feel like um... When you're in school, learning about public health and learning about how to navigate data sets and doing um, case studies and and learning how to read research and all that sort of armchair uh, public health, that it's important to give it a face and to give it a name and to actually see people who are dealing with these issues because it reinforces a lot of the things that you learn, but it also um, helps put it into context.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, the longer I worked as a case manager, the more it became less about HIV and more about the social determinants of health. You know,
0: what are the social determinants of health?
1: Well, thanks for asking. Um, So the social determinants of health are really. I guess, factors within a person's social or built environment um, that impact their behavioral decision-making. So, for instance, um, access to housing or transportation or um, their economic circumstances or, um, you know, employment. Those sorts Mm -hmm. of things are all social determinants of health. So they're not necessarily directly health-related, but they impact whether or not someone is healthy, right?
0: So non-biological factors that either determine or you know exacerbate
1: right exactly issues exactly so you know for me one of the biggest issues we had was housing housing was a huge issue and housing for hiv people living with hiv there are programs specifically for people living with hiv but the wait list is crazy Hmm. you know and then on top of that so like let's say you're on the wait list for this special HUD program, so you're like, okay, well, you know, I'm gonna try and get Section Eight. Well, Section Eight has a has a waiting list, so it's it's really difficult, you know, for yeah. as a case manager to really help somebody navigate that system. But you know, there's just not enough resources to put people and, and housing is so crucial because how can you expect somebody to take their medication and try and live a healthier life if they don't even have a place to sleep? Right. You know, so it's really that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We want to make sure that people have shelter. So I'm again, just
0: dropping all kinds of vocab words
1: here. I know, right? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but no, I housing and transportation. Transportation was also a huge issue, especially here in Pinellas, because our public transportation system is not great, um, not reliable, and people have doctors' appointments. They mm-hmm. have to get their medication. You know, they it, it's. Again, it becomes less about the disease and more about the person's environment and their social determinants of health and how that impacts the way they manage their HIV. So, yeah. So it was very interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, One other thing that that you mentioned that I'd like you to expand on a little bit was Ryan White. Yes. So who was that and what is it?
1: Okay, so Ryan White was a child who had hemophilia, and he lived in Indiana. And unfortunately, he got a blood transfusion that was tainted with HIV. And this was during the time when blood banks didn't have a mechanism to screen for HIV. So he got HIV, um, and unfortunately, his community was not accepting of him. I think they actually burned his house down.
0: Oh, boy.
1: So he eventually passed away from an AIDS-related opportunistic infection, And so his mother fought and eventually got legislation named after him. And the Ryan White program essentially is a fund set up to be distributed between states. And what it does is it provides funding for testing. So it really kind of runs the gamut of primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. So it provides funding for testing. It provides funding for case management. So I was funded through Ryan White. My job was. Um, It also provides uh, money for primary care because if you have HIV, you are um, eligible to get your primary care paid for um, as long as you are um, below 400% of the federal poverty level. However, that has changed because of the ACA. Um, And it also helps with medication. So HIV medication is very expensive. Uh, On average, it's about $4,000 a month to (laughs) <laughs> pay for just HIV antiretrovirals. So that funding really helps subsidize that for um, for people with HIV so they don't have to pay that out of pocket. Because we've realized that if people are in treatment and managing their HIV, they're actually less infectious. So yeah. if they slip up and end up you know, having unprotected sex, if their viral load is really, really low, the probability of them transmitting it to another person is low as well. So... You know, yes, condoms are obviously our first line of defense, but if we can get people who are positive to lower their viral levels and, you know, lower the probability of transmitting it, that's another way that we can really tamp down the HIV infection rate. So, yeah. yeah.
0: And so this is one of those issues in public health that is so complicated because (laughs) there's the social aspect, the financial aspect. The actual biological aspect mm-hmm. and the cultural aspect in that we have so much, even in 2017, stigma associated yes, with the absolutely. disease and behaviors associated with people who have the disease. And so that's something that we have to address constantly. Mm-hmm. And absolutely. it's hard because it's... it. Requires a culture change, Mm -hmm. which is next to impossible to do on a case by case basis. Exactly. Um, Of course, you know, Magic Johnson, celebrities that kind of help normalize Mm -hmm. talking about the issue are helpful. And um, just the fact that you see more and more people who live with it and are not dying and suffering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But still there's a tremendous stigma.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things that we really struggled with was outreach uh, in the African-American community here in St. Pete. And part of that um, was the stigma around HIV. Because HIV uh, is associated with homosexuality and we have a very religious community here. You know, it was very difficult even to get people to come to our building to get testing. I mean, it's, they didn't want anybody to see them or associate them or think that they're gay. Um, so one of the things that we really worked on was actually working with the faith-based community to get them on board offering testing at faith-based centers uh, to really try and normalize it within that community. And yeah, it, it's, we've made some strides, but we still have a long way to go.
0: And if you're interested in getting involved in this issue and you want to help but don't know where to start, there are so many facets of this disease that you can get involved in. Uh, There's treatment adherence, mental health, substance abuse, sexual health, nutrition and food safety, aging with HIV, medication side effects, drug resistance, uh, preventing mother-to-child transmission. There are so many different facets of this issue. There are... um, co-infections like hepatitis, which is fancy medical speak for inflammation of the liver, Uh, legal issues like civil rights, legal disclosure of status and criminalization, Um, pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, which is basically a special medication that people can take who uh, they know they engage in high-risk behavior but want to lower their chances of getting infected, uh, rural versus urban issues, and obviously, uh, gender and sexuality. And so if you're interested in learning more about this stuff, there are so many different resources out there. But, uh, you know, one good entry point is you can go to www.aids.gov to learn the basics and find out what you can do to help. Look up your own local aid service organizations, volunteer at events, learn how to um, you know, help out and, and test people and just kind of get involved in your community, whether this is a, a passion of yours or something that you want to uh, learn more about to get experience. So with that in mind, uh, we are going to go to our next segment, which is our first ever viral guest panel. And uh, my friend Naomi and our friend Candace both work in uh, the field of HIV AIDS. Have experience, and so we think they would bring a, an interesting local perspective. Um, so uh yeah, enjoy. All right, so the theme of our group discussion is HIV prevention and care at the local level, and today we have a nurse and a public health worker. Our public health worker is Naomi Arjumond Kermani and uh, They are a graduate of New College of Florida with a bachelor's of arts in biology and did their graduate work at the University of Florida in public health. I was actually a co-worker or a uh, co-student with them. Their master's special project consisted of assisting in the planning and implementation of a statewide needs assessment for HIV prevention among Florida men who have sex with men. Naomi is currently the Ryan White Planning Manager for Suncoast Health Council covering eight counties in West Central Florida. Previously, Naomi spent four years as an associate planner at Well Florida Council, the health planning council of North Central Florida, where they planned, implemented, and managed an HIV prevention grant. Uh, in addition to their work in the HIV-AIDS field, Naomi is also an independent diversity and inclusion consultant and presents cultural competency workshops to a variety of organizations. Welcome. Welcome.
1: We also have Candace Dornstarter, who is a registered nurse, Bachelor of Science uh, of Nursing, which she received at the University of Saskatchewan, and she's currently a doctorate nurse practitioner in adult gerontology and oncology uh, as a student at USF. She's currently the president of the Tampa Bay Chapter of Association of Nurses in AIDS Care, and is the former Medical Educational Services Supervisor at the AIDS Service Association of Pinellas, which is where we met when I was an HIV case manager. So welcome, Candice. Thank you. All right,
0: so I guess just first of all, uh, Naomi, you can start. How did you get here, and what lights your fire for this kind of work?
2: Well, I I ended up in in the fields of HIV-AIDS kind of by accident. Uh, I started in the program, the Master's of Public Health program, with you, And I remember every single time when they would ask us, what is your interest? What do you want to do? I would say, well, I'm really interested in queer and trans health promotion. Oh, so you want to work in HIV? No, I don't want to work in HIV. Everything that has to do with our communities isn't about HIV. But I ended up in HIV when it came to my master's special project. And I ended up at Well Florida Council. They had just gotten a high impact prevention grant and... I was the best fit for them, and I've been in HIV-AIDS ever since, and I'm really happy to be here.
0: Cool. Welcome. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people just kind of fall into whatever, you know, specialty they end up in. Very, I'd say the minority where you see a public health person who's just like, I've been interested in malaria since I was seven years old, and they're like, (laughs) whoa, dude, back off. Why are that's a weird thing to say. It's more like, oh, this program became available, and, and then... I did it and I turned out I liked it and we went from there.
2: Yeah, I was supposed to go to medical school and be a gynecologist, but that didn't really happen the way I thought it would.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think more people need to learn that public health is an option no matter what their interests yes, are. Yes, absolutely. And people like, I didn't learn about it until senior year of undergrad that it was even a field. Same. So, yeah. yeah. So, Candace, uh, how did you get into this? I know you well, were a nurse.
3: Yeah, I started out as a nurse and I came here from Canada in 2006. And I came as a travel nurse, which was really, really fun. What is a so travel a, nurse? A travel nurse its oh, such a great job. You actually take three-month contracts, and you can work anywhere you want. You can go all over the place. And it was a really good way to segue into American healthcare because I had to redo all the certifications and all the proofs to make sure that I was a nurse and a good nurse. And then I just took three-month contracts wherever I wanted to, to check out. And I liked it a lot in Florida, so I stayed. So There's you can no travel to different here.
0: states or does that go across country so, lines? Like, I don't know how that oh, It
3: does. Cool. There's some reciprocity in some states. It depends which company you work for. It depends what kinds of things you do. I'm, my specialty before this was um, critical care. So I could pretty much go wherever I wanted because there's always been a high demand. For there's that. always
0: going to be people falling off ladders, and
3: there's always going to be that. There's always going to be people who put things. Well, it's it's kind of a little game we used to play called "Who shoved what in the what?" Now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I feel like yes, a- <laughs> we really do talk about that, but without any identifying, no personal identifiers.
1: So. Right. It's like but the, the stories nurse
0: do go around the yeah. nurse version of a handshake. It's like, oh hey. Um, a broom handle? <laughs> aren't you? Curtain um, rod. Curtain rod. Yes, ah, curtain rod. Curtain rod. <laughs> rod meet... All of these things are true. <laughs> All of my stories. Curtain rod. Meet Xbox controller. Yeah. You're like. Oh. oh. So yeah, you
3: know, randomly, that actually relates to how I got into this because I'm always fascinated by human sexuality, and I've seen it in every aspect of care, from critical care to oncology. So I came down here in 2006 and I worked in critical care, which is really, it's intensive care for a reason. It's really intense. And I got to the point after doing that for about 10 years where I wanted to see what people did with the lives that we saved. You know, because we would get them in, they would be on death's door. We would work so hard to save them, preserve that life. And then they left us and we never knew what happened to them.
0: Yeah. like. So I always
3: wondered, like, what do people do treat sure. and Treat them and street treat them. That's, that's
0: what... Yeah, yeah, that's a thing. And
3: I have I actually running, I run into... American healthcare model. <laughs> Naomi's like, oh, God. <laughs> I ran into uh, somebody one time in a grocery store who said to me, like, oh, hey, you know, started talking to me in a very familiar way, and I was completely confused. And he says, you don't remember me. I'm like, nope. And he says, oh, I was a patient for so long, and you guys are... All... Like if you were walking through the supermarket in a small blue dress right now, I would maybe recognize you because that's the only context I have for people is bloody and in a small blue gown. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so nice. I really wanted to get outside of the hospital and see what does health look like on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm. So I ended up when looking up jobs and found the HIV services coordinator program and thought that could be very interesting.
1: And it was.
0: It was. <laughs> <laughs> so, the past couple episodes, we've discussed like big picture legislation at state and federal levels, and we've talked about big issues like epidemiology. And in this one, we're trying, we're actually zooming into a specific um, disease state, a specific virus. Uh, so, but even so, like certain issues get glossed over. Um, what Gets glossed over from your experience directly working with members of the community.
3: I think it really is the basics. It's Mm -hmm. a bizarre thing that we forget being medical professionals that people don't understand the basics. So we gloss over the fact that people don't understand that infectious disease is still a thing. Mm -hmm. People forget that because you have running water and toilets, I mean, who knows where that stuff comes from or where it goes to, right? This is the magic of the world we've created. So we don't have a basic fundamental understanding of infectious disease anymore. And so trying to communicate that. But the other thing that I was thinking is such an important thing we gloss over is culture. We have no capacity in our mental in our medical healthcare system for how culture is the most central thing that impacts your health mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for reminding me
2: why I was rejected from a PhD program, for bringing up that exact topic. Oh. (laughs)
3: Oh, it perpetuates, doesn't it? But kind of to
2: piggyback off of what Candice was saying is it really is the basics, especially if we're talking about HIV, is sex education is something that gets glossed over, over and over again. We throw condoms out at people and we tell them to use them and we go, oh, we gave you condoms. Why didn't you use them? What's wrong with you? You should know better. Well, you didn't teach them why. You didn't teach them about the infectious disease. You didn't teach them how to use it. And you certainly didn't teach them how to use it and still experience pleasure. We kind of all forget about that whole mm-hmm. central aspect of sex yeah. has to do with pleasure. Mm-hmm. And even if you do know how to use a condom, I can tell you that 75% to 80% of the people when I was doing condom outreach had never heard of lube or knew what lube was oh, even I supposed to be I know What a tragedy. For.
1: What Truly a tragedy. A tragedy. Like, lube going to change your life. Yep. It changed mine. Yeah, I feel like it changes everybody. So once you're like, what?
0: This episode of Viral is brought to you by Blue. Lube. Make your I, life into a slip and slide. I
3: have to go and regress right now and tell you all about a time when Lindsay had a brilliant idea working at ASAP. And we are a massive condom distributor to our community. And Lindsay... Begged and begged to get flavored lube, which they got. And then she really, really wanted to organize a tasting party.
2: Yes. I oh, love the
3: tasting parties. Again, yes. like so many structured organizations, they did not acknowledge her brilliance. And oh. so unfortunately, we did not have the Tasted condom and lube tasting it, party, man. which yeah. I thought was brilliant. It really so that great.
1: actually stemmed from something I actually did with the Safer Sex Patrol. Yep. Safer
0: Sex I old. had
1: a like Safer Sex... Fair, which was like carnival themed, and we had a taste testing booth. So that's one of my students did
2: a saber sex fair and did a set was testing so booth. It
1: We had like dildo bowling, and it was so great. But wow. seriously, seriously, that's an important. Aspect. You don't want to you don't want to buy mm-hmm. like a half gallon of lube and then and figure out you don't like the taste of it. That's practicality. And
2: another thing about lube is that it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of a yes. 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 I mean, in the either.
1: same way that
2: the condoms are not a, let me throw one at you and it's going to be the best fit for you. Lubrication, also, there are so many different types, and you really have to go digging to look for the lube that's going to work best for you. Yeah. You cannot just get your standard lube mm-hmm. and go, oh, this is definitely going to be my favorite. This, this is going to really be the best it. one. So there's so much more thought that goes into the basics of just sex than what we talk about and especially if we're talking about Florida we don't want to even have the conversation about sex to begin with
0: no the fact that you mentioned sex ed actually I'm a little worried we're going to have men in suits walk in the door right now and carry us all the way
1: oh yeah bring it (laughs) (laughs) so I feel
0: like we're we're slipping and sliding off topic
1: wow nice segue thank
0: you um why is a local perspective important when we talk about HIV AIDS because we hear a lot about, you know, like the Ryan White program and like it's big federal dollars that go into this. And there's all these, um, these uh, double blind studies about, you know, things going on at the federal level. But the actual stories of people who still deal with this kind of get forgotten or that it's glossed over. And, th- and you think that, well, because it's a manageable condition, we've we've fixed it. Right. Like let's um, apply,
1: you know, these... You know, narrow set of concepts and like preconceptions about a population, and then just apply it to the entire. Oh yeah, because everyone who has
2: HIV/AIDS is just one homogenous group. We have a blob of people who have all the exact same issues. (laughs) I think it's really important for us to have a local perspective because there's going to be different populations dependent on where you are that are going to have the greatest need. So, for example, if we're in an area that's lower income, then we need to be focusing on things like. Ah, Maybe part of the reason why we're seeing higher rates of HIV AIDS is because people are housing insecure or have Mm -hmm. no way to get a job, and so they're engaging in survival sex. So now we're talking about a very specific population of sex workers. How are we going to implement something to actually reduce their risk? So really, risk reduction has to be as tailored as possible and very regionally specific going right back to what Candace said, we never think about culture. And every single region that we're going to be in is gonna have a different culture and we need to approach these situations differently everyone is not going to have the same experience intersectionality whoa
3: yeah i also think that it's really important because if you don't have local stories and if you don't have a local context you lose the sense of responsibility mm-hmm. it's really easy to distance yourself on a national level oh, yeah if you don't talk about what's happening on your street and in your city parks and in your neighborhoods and your high yeah. schools it's not your problem, right? If we talk about what happens to our people, it's our responsibility. So national programs are great and the national funding is great, but we need that. If but you don't have a local context, you have no sense of, of ownership of our community health.
0: Yeah, and I feel like that's something that probably in every field to some degree has this, but those who work at, you know, federal agencies a lot of times have never interacted with someone a member of the public who yeah, has the condition. it's just stats. It's just stats and numbers.
1: It's like, and oh, MSM. And it's like, those are those people. Those are people. Those are humans. Those are humans that are in relationships that are just as complicated as yours. And, so. you know,
0: if, if you're listening to this and you've worked, uh, you know, up at the CDC or the um, HHS and you haven't gotten that kind of experience, it is never too late to start. Yes. Go contact your local organizations and volunteer because... That's honestly the best way to get started. And And that way you can put some context to the work that you do and make you do your job better.
1: So to also, well, this is probably, well, this might be released on the day, but Dining Out for Life is actually this week, this Thursday. Thursday. So if you want to support your local aid service organizations or ASOs, Dining Out for Life is a great way to do that. And that's happening all across the United States um, and probably in your community. So check it out. And that's a great way to connect with um, you know, an organization that may need volunteers. Mm-hmm. Usually it's pretty easy to get yourself um, certified to be an HIV testing counselor. Or to just help out for with whatever they need, they may have a food pantry. So.
2: And pro tip: if you are really into following the funding and grant writing, etc., it sure would be nice if you could bring people who are actually affected by these things to the table. Yes. Oh, yes. Rather yes. than just using them for the funding, actually bring them to the table and ask them what their needs are, and actually get an opinion leader, a respected leader. To assist in that needs assessment rather than just going out and handing out surveys or making your own decisions based on what you see at the federal level. Yeah.
1: It sounds like you're speaking from experience now. Just (laughs) a tiny bit. Okay.
0: So that's kind of a a good segue to what I wanted to talk about next because um, what's a good way for someone... To approach somebody to ask them to become someone at the table without making it sound like you're you're tokenizing them or something.
2: Ah, that's like, a slippery slope. <laughs> uh, yeah, because
0: you don't want to say, "Hey, you've got this. Come over here," because you, I want you to be that person at the table. But you also need that perspective at the same time, um, and that kind of, will, kind of leads into into stigma and and bringing into some right. of these other issues. Like, how do you how do you bring those people to the table? in a way that's respectful and that, you know, besides just like the basic, hey, have basic human decency. um.
2: Step one, actually care about the populations that you're serving and actually getting out there and learning more about them. Uh, You really are useless to the field of public health in general if you're just sitting behind a desk the entire time. If we're talking about actually going out and doing population work, you need to actually get to know the population. You cannot just continue to tokenize people over and over and over again for the purpose of funding because at some point in time you're going to lose that population altogether. And it's not like we haven't seen that in certain populations, (laughs) but you actually have to care, get out there. Or, hey, if you're involved in academia or you're involved in these different programs, organizations, etc., people within our communities who are affected by these things do actually exist in academia and among you in your professions as well so perhaps get to know them and they can also introduce you to the community or they can be your liaison into the community but really get out there like Lindsay said earlier go become an hiv counselor and tester Go out and hand out some condoms. Get to know the communities because the only way you're going to get them to respect you is to actually gain their trust in some exactly. way, shape, or form.
1: And we've talked about how public health is built on trust mm-hmm. and that's why when we violate that trust, it takes decades to get it back. And so that's why it's, I mean, imperative to get out in the community and really start building relationships and make them authentic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
0: And so, like... To kind of on the tail end of that, uh, what can public health and healthcare professionals do to kind of help uh, adjust the language that they use to discuss HIV/AIDS? Because I feel like I see this sometimes in very well-meaning people: use of the words with negative or demeaning undertones like infected or this is an HIV patient rather than this is a person. Living with HIV or, yeah, person based language or, you know, talking about like something is tainted or um, Mm. using words like that.
2: Are you clean? Yeah. Yeah. So like,
0: what are some ways that that from the health and public health perspective, we can advance um, reducing stigma? Obviously, respecting, caring about population, bringing people to the table, being aware of the language that you use.
1: Listening is a big thing. What's that? (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would say listening. You know, everybody has a story. And I think that we, that's when we start applying stereotypes to people so we don't Mm -hmm. listen. You know, I, when I was a case manager, I met so many different people I mean, people that you would see on the street that you'd have no idea that they um, were living with HIV, you know, and they got it through different means. I mean, people from blood transfusions and they just, you know, that was during, they got it during the time that, you know, we didn't have a screening tool in the, for our blood banks. But also, a lot of people just made mistakes and, you know, that's okay. Like, they took, they took the step to be, to be a part of, a treatment plan and they're managing it and even if they're not they still have a case manager which is our job. I yeah. think it's
2: really really important for us to not qualify people's illnesses yes. and yes. to not say well some people got it from this and some people a lot of people got it from sex a yep. lot of people ended up infected because of sex yep and guess what they just happened to be the lucky winner who actually got yes, infected. Exactly. Because there are plenty of us, myself included, who have decided to engage in sexual activity without protection or without a barrier. Yep. But we lucked out in that we didn't walk away with some form of infection or condition from it. Exactly. It is really terrible to me that we mm-hmm. just constantly put this burden of guilt on individuals who their immune system was just not kicking it as well as the rest of ours. And somehow we can turn around and say, well, you shouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have gotten this if you hadn't done that. Exactly. When plenty of those people who are saying it are doing that exact same thing on the regular. But for whatever reason, they seem to be striking the lucky bell and not getting infected yeah. so for me i think it's a lot about just let's be honest let's talk about what happened and let's talk about right. the fact that not everyone won the luck of the draw and so those of us who actually ended up in a situation that we have to manage this chronic and manageable disease okay no one's going to be getting on you for getting cancer yeah it's like it's oh exciting. man
0: you got the flu what were you doing going to work yeah, right and and talking to your friends and going out to drink that night Yeah. so um candace Nurses obviously play a very important role in caring for HIV patients. They not only act as caregivers, but also educators and advocates as well. Often that involves a thorough understanding not only of the biological and the physiological um, nature of the disease, treatment adherence, co-infections like hepatitis, substance abuse, aging, all that kind of stuff, But you also have to know how to navigate the social services, whether or not you are like a case manager, you still have to know to connect them to a case manager and ask questions about their non-biological factors like housing and their family situation. Like that is a tremendous amount of like pressure and responsibility. So learning to
3: bridge that was such an interesting journey for me. And finding out the extraordinary cost and the challenges in meeting that maintenance of care. Yes, yes, it's incredible that we've developed so many treatments and so many new ways of dealing with things, but those things all entail a cost. And and you know, you hear these things and you never know what to think. Is it is it evil pharma? Is it good pharma? How does this system work? Trying to translate that alone for patients is such a challenge. Mm -hmm. But I also like the fact that on the healthcare provider side, we can geek out with our microbiology and we understand viruses on a chemical and physical level, which is amazing to me, totally fascinating. And I can sit down with a patient and engage them in that so that I can help them understand what is a virus, what is it doing in your system. How does that impact you? Because one of the hardest things about this disease is to convince people that they have to take care of themselves every single day. Because it doesn't always seem like that. It's not like cancer, that if you don't take care of it and go to your appointments, it'll take over and there'll be a giant tumor in your face before you know it. It's not like that, it's very insidious. It's very slow, and the way it works is it destroys your immune system. So you slowly get sicker and sicker. And the ironic thing is that once the immune system's completely destroyed, you don't even know it. Mm -hmm. You can walk around with literally dozens of diseases in your system and feel fine. So getting someone like that into my care and convincing them to go on medications that will actually make them feel worse for a while... Because once your body has the medication and the strength to build up an immune system, it starts recognizing those diseases that were just hanging out. Because they could set up shop while you had no immune system to fight them off. So as a nurse, it's really important for me to be able to take the medical knowledge and experience and translate it to them in a way that makes them really comprehend the long-term consequences Mm -hmm. of this. You know, that a person can walk around with six different kinds of opportunistic infections that we're all exposed to, but that will ultimately kill them if they're not careful. It's a really, really difficult challenge sometimes. But if you work with people, you meet them where they are, mm-hmm. give yes. them understanding and bits of information in pieces they can process. Because it's too hard to sit down with somebody and just dump a textbook of knowledge on them. You know, you have to meet with them. You have to develop a relationship. You don't know
0: what their level of education or, you know.
3: And my patients frequently, I would say to them, like, how many times have you ever stopped doing someone because someone put their finger in your face and said, stop doing that? That never works. It never, never works. So we should stop doing that. People need to understand their own health, how it works, and then make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. And I've often had that conversation with my patients. You can make whatever decisions you want. You just have to understand that there are sometimes consequences for those decisions. And that's okay. I don't judge what they decide. I just try and help them understand what those consequences might mean to them.
2: So they can have their own agency and make their own decisions. Right. Their right. Body. And yeah. it's,
3: you know, there's so many programs and services out there that people don't know about. And that's yes. another part. That's, but you have to remember, this is a whole person who exists in the world. And they have a lot more going on than what's happening in your interaction with them in 30 minutes.
0: Yeah. And so, um, like, where we've got, you know, advances in medicine that have transformed it from a death sentence to a manageable chronic condition, Um, but from a public health perspective, we still have new infections that are occurring, Uh, even though it's not on the front page anymore, like, you know, it was in the 80s. We still have to affirm that prevention, like condom use, safe sex practices, pre-exposure prophylaxis, correcting misinformation are still super important. And also, while the margins have changed, marginalized populations are still disproportionately affected. Uh, So in 2017, what subpopulations and issues get left out of the mainstream discussion?
2: Well, to kind of go back onto my little issue with funding is that a lot of times we do bring up these marginalized populations but only for the sake of funding. So for example now the the hot ticket is to talk about trans individuals and transgender individuals and and their incidence of HIV but we still are not collecting data appropriately when we're even doing any sort of needs assessment or we're doing any sort of
1: like census data
0: oh don't get me started on that.
2: well the I census started too, out yeah. is pretty racist to begin with so It's exactly. really yeah. not helpful at all i'm it's just like, saying i
1: mean we're men, white like women baseline, baseline, baseline data yeah. population data we can't even get that right you so know. i was
2: at the usca conference this past year and i sat in on a cdc workshop and they were going over uh sexual health uh data for youth And they were going through line by line every single one of the questions. And I stopped them right when they got to sex. And I went, wait, (laughs) did you have a gender question as well? Did you follow this up in a two-part question? No, we we just didn't know how we were going to do that. And we didn't want to confuse the kids. And I was like, well, then all of your data is trash. You can't tell me anything about sexual habits and sexual risk-taking among any of these teenagers if you're not telling me what their sexual orientation and gender identity is. Because those... You're counting all of those kids as outliers and then going, oh, well, they don't really matter in the data because they're just an outlier when they have a breadth of rich information to give to you based on their experiences because of being marginalized as being a gender or sexual minority. so. We still aren't doing the right data collection when it comes to that sort of thing. And we also are still categorizing trans men as women and trans women as men who have sex with men. Again, they're not having sex the same way as the rest of the people that you're categorizing them as. So you're just continuing to marginalize them, but you're using them for the language for funding. Also, disabled folks get left out of the conversation all the time, both physical, mental, Mental. developmental, all left out of the picture. We never think about how autism comes into play. We never have ASL interpreters for people. Oh, great. Well, we have this person who ended up with HIV. Gee, I wonder why. I actually saw quite a few individuals who are deaf or hard of hearing that were HIV newly infected. And no one was really able to have any sort of a conversation with them or explain to them what was going on. And then you're talking about individuals who may be developmentally delayed, etc. And we're not having honest conversations with them because, well, they don't really understand sex. Well, they understood something. They're they're doing it. You know, yeah, it's something yeah.
1: happened here and we're not having honest conversations with them. That's like... Well, that's that's my research is basically developing sex ed for uh, individuals with intellectual disabilities because there's the consistent misconception that, you know, if you have a disability, you're either asexual or you're hypersexual. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like apparently there's no in-between even though we have people that end up with HIV or they end up pregnant or they... You know, so there's all these pieces that are you know related back to sexual decision making right and then you have the issue of consent but yeah i mean that's and actually when we were working at asap um we had individuals that came in that were older who ended up getting diagnosed with asperger's Mm -hmm. as older men because Mm -hmm. at the time when they were younger that test and screening Mm -hmm. did not exist so you have people who are later life diagnosed as Asperger's, which one of the things is risk, you know, obviously um, grandiose ideas, which, you know, is correlated with risk-taking, right? And they've essentially lived their entire lives bouncing, you know, between the boundaries of what we consider normal in society, not really understanding why they take these risks. Or, same thing with people ooh, who
2: have ADHD. The same exactly. sort of behaviors we're seeing. And then also, I... I Intravenous drug users always get used for data. They always yeah. get used for data. They always are a category. But but I mean, the state of Florida doesn't have a risk reduction method when it comes to a clean needle exchange, a safer. Oh goodness, that, you know, we're refusing Clutch to have that conversation. Yeah. That. And we saw a spike in new HIV infections mm-hmm. after the crackdown on opioids. Okay. Came yes, down because now we have all of these. Soccer moms who are getting their, you know, getting their drugs from their doctors and now they can't do that anymore. And now we have people who are switching mm-hmm. over to heroin because it's super cheap. It's super cheap. It it's
3: everywhere. super cheap. I, I hope that you guys do an entire podcast on that because I, I do have I do want to talk yeah, about there, that. I mean, in that I will own that as a medical professional. We have created this problem. We are going to see the repercussions from that because of the heroin use, because that's the only accessible yeah. thing. Oh, that man. people have now. It, it's beyond belief how terribly we've impacted society with this. And that we refuse to own the responsibility oh, to rectify
1: in this this. Kind of
0: as a sidebar, um, I actually got to meet our county medical examiner two years ago. And he this was really interesting because I, first of all, didn't know what county medical examiners did. They basically conduct autopsies for anyone who dies in you know a, a crime, a car accident, um, you know, bodies found in the street. They or, are the
1: Dana Scully of <laughs> they, the They
0: they do investigations and they basically the guy said, you know, we've been seeing a lot of people who die who've been using fentanyl, mm-hmm. cutting yeah. fentanyl, fentanyl into fentanyl their drugs. This was two years ago. Yeah. Two yes. years ago. And he said, just watch. In a year or two from now, this is going to be on the news. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, that sounds interesting. And now it's on the news. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you wouldn't think that people who are doing autopsies, although it makes perfect Perfect sense sense. that, yeah, because they're 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 literally seeing it Mm -hmm. first in front of their faces like, Mm -hmm. oh man, this person Mm -hmm. cut a surgical grade anesthetic into their... or." got that drug from someone not knowing that it had been cut in. Well, it's cheaply and
3: added to the heroin to stretch the product. To stretch the product and you know, make it
0: a, a harder dose, a harder
1: hit. Being Canadian, and
3: I, like, I have a lot of thoughts on legalization of drugs and just in general. I definitely but want to talk more about like There's so much about situation. those things that impacts our communities and again, it goes back to your socioeconomic issues and your culture and the ways and means that people just need to get by. And sure. you know, you were saying about this, they said the Census data would confuse them if they gave them more than two issues. Doesn't it confuse them to make them conform to one of two things? I and mean, that to me is far more confusing than getting proper information yeah. about people. Yeah. It just shows how we try and simplify things, and what we do is make them far more complicated than they need to be. And we cheat ourselves out of having the right information.
2: Yeah, the last group I was going to bring up were people who are not English speakers. So, yes. uh, you know, yeah. we, we categorize. Well, it's oh, we've got it in Spanish, we've got it in English, and now, now we now we have it in Haitian. Every once in a while, we have it in Haitian Creole, but we still are not reaching out to all those other populations who actually need to have this information given to them in a way that they can actually absorb it and that's accessible yeah. to them. So, if we look at Native American populations, for example, we still see a huge Huge prevalence of HIV and we're not actually meeting them at a cultural level. Same thing within the Asian American populations. It's a pretty big number of individuals who have HIV mm-hmm. and we're not reaching them or meeting them where they're at like you had said earlier Candice.
0: So, kind of in summary um, meet people where they're at bring them to the table you know, representation is important um, thank a nurse <laughs> And a public health worker. <laughs> and a public health worker. Uh, what else?
1: Visit your medical examiner's office. Yeah. For talk to future those health problems. trends. Yeah. Also, that's pretty cool.
3: I my favorite thing to tell people is talk about sex. Make yes. it, Please it normal. Just talk about it. Everybody has it. We're all here because of it. Right. I, just get so angry with people that they treat sex like it's something so strange. It's not. It's, it's not. It's let's so Let's destigmatize great. sex and yes. life will get so much easier.
2: Start yes. teaching your kids about sex at age three. Make it age appropriate and start talking about like that. Yes. Because it's yes. also going something to assist in lowering other things like rape, for example, and or sexual assault. assaults. Because we're going to be talking about consent. Yes. yes. And what that, that looks like yep kids alright
0: well that was a really good chat um, we also we'd like to wrap up all of oh, our yeah, guest yeah. interviews by talking about what we're reading now we have some people here who are in school still and I know that reading is, involves a lot of textbooks and it's you like really to hard. engage in entertainment in other ways so I'm going to open the window for uh, so kind. TV shows or other so things good. that you have going on I I am currently reading I'm still working my way through Hamilton And I'm reading um, Born to Run by Chris, I think it's McDonald. I don't don't remember the author's name, but the book about the super uh, marathoners and like ultra athletes in Mexico. It's really, it's an interesting book. Um, And we've been watching the reboot of Mystery Science Theater, which is fantastic. I'm loving every second of it. What about you guys?
2: I'm currently reading a book called In Between. I'm really all about the young adult fiction. Yeah. I'm all about it. I'm okay. all about it. And I just started season two of The Following because I'm super into cults yeah. and things like that. So, uh, is that Six Degrees one? of Separation with Kevin Bacon. Kevin so Bacon.
1: Ruined by that show.
0: <laughs> oh, man. I've heard that's good. I haven't watched it. Oh, it's
1: it. really good. Um, so, I'm in school. <laughs> And I've been reading a lot of articles. <laughs> You've talked about podcasts the past couple yeah, of times. Yeah, I'm not so. going to talk about podcasts this time. I, James and I have been working our way through the X-Files. Yes. Which is why. I, I heard they're going to do another I know.
0: new season.
1: I know. No. I I'm only on season five. <laughs> and it's like climbing a mountain right now. But it's so good. Um, And we started watching the Iron Fist. Lots of thoughts on that, but I'll. Leave that at a later time. But it's not bad. Um, still not sure if I feel great about a white guy basically being the iron. The Fest. iron Fest. So yeah. I have a lot of feelings about that. So, but the and... <laughs> yeah, but the X Files, great. Dana Scully, really great uh, medical professional, feminist. Even though she doesn't really talk about it, but she shouldn't take any shit from Boulder. I'm <laughs> sick of it. I'm sick of it.
0: Listen, the 90s. (laughs) Yeah,
1: listen. (laughs) Get your shit
0: together. Get your (laughs)
1: shit together. I'm sick of the shoulder pads. Let her wear something that shows her figure. She looks like a box. (laughs) That's my... Okay. Maybe Maybe she wanted to look like a box.
0: She wants to look like a box. Let her look like a box. I mean, that is a prerogative.
3: And I will... I will also take some credit for being a 90s kid. I had the shoulder pads. I'm we sure we loved our shoulder I'm pads. I'm sure you rocked it. And we like to also look like Swedish rock stars yes, with the hair true. and the shoulder pads. It's true. true. You had to have the shoulder pad to hold up the hair.
1: Okay. But of course. To
3: the platform. So um, I read a lot of textbooks and a lot of articles and don't tell any of my professors in my doctoral program, but... Um, I'm reading the Hobbit and the Rings trilogy yes. and I had to stop. I had stopped myself because I was getting so deep into it that I was like, I can't focus on it. I, I I'll, I'll just end up, you know, right, in my yeah. advanced lab diagnostics going, Frodo, yeah! and, <laughs> I'll be like right. we should have third breakfasts <laughs> I, and <laughs> you know, yes. talking about my precious all the time. So mm. That And I'm also reading a book that is really helping me a lot that was recommended by one of my professors called um, How Doctors Think by Jerome Groom, which is really good because it's really helping me transition my nurse brain into a doctor brain Mm -hmm. because there are some pretty distinct differences in how we have to look at the situation and how we need to organize our thoughts around our patients. And he's also very real. Um, talking about like how practical experience changes the way that you interact with patients and textbooks don't always give you the solutions so
0: yeah we'll have to talk to you again when you you're on the other side on the other
3: side of it yeah it's going to be really interesting
1: (laughs) well thank you both so much for taking the time to uh, answer our questions and share some of your very busy time yeah we really appreciate it thank you Thank you so
3: much. Well, thanks, for thanks for having, having us. There. I could talk hey. about it for God a
0: long speed. time. Godspeed. God. Your <laughs> program. Yes. <laughs> Whatever speed it is, as long as it's fast. <laughs> yes. That's... That's speed. All right. all right. All right. Thanks. Bye. Today's public health fact is brought to us by Sandy Halliday. Sandy wrote, In the last decade of the 18th century, smallpox was responsible for nearly 7% of all deaths in Europe but thanks to vaccines, smallpox is a thing of the past. The last natural known case was in Somalia in 1977. Since then, the only known cases were caused by a laboratory accident in 1978 in Birmingham, England, which killed one person and caused a limited outbreak. The disease was officially declared eradicated in 1979. If you have a cool public health fact that you want to share, send it to us. Hey, it's Quinn. I wanted to spend just a minute talking about the March for Science that happened last week in Washington, D.C. and more than 600 other cities across the world. It was held on Earth Day, April 22nd, and uh, Lindsay and I participated in the St. Petersburg March for Science. Uh, It was a really positive experience. We saw a lot of great signs, met actually a few uh, other public health professionals, which was pretty neat. And um, yeah, we went out and kind of showed our support for evidence-based policy and evidence-informed policy. So, um, you know, things are serious when the introverts get out and put on sunscreen and walk around outside, leave their labs, put their books down. And yell in the streets. Uh, so, yeah, we hear some uh, sounds that we captured. It was pretty fun. It was my first time doing one of these things, and uh, I think I would do it again. So, yeah, enjoy. Come on, Christine!
1: We need, we need Lindsay
0: and to uh, back up Are we going Hey, hey ho. ho Science knows Yeah right.
1: Yes Okay ready Yep Is it hey Hey, hey ho
0: Or? See I don't want to say ho Hey ho Hey ho <laughs> Only science <laughs> oh, knows Oh I like <laughs> that take a your
1: sign Yes Thank you. <laughs> oh, Look man. You. So the Did you post that on Facebook this morning? time? Did
0: you post that on Facebook? Science!
1: science not silence! Science, science, not,
0: science. not silence!
1: Because <laughs> the part of me wants to say science is science, and they're like, no.
0: Like, science is science.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Stop overanalyzing the...
1: It's because, because the words are so similar. It's sometimes it's hard to say. It is. Say. <laughs> 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 it's like when you try to think about how to say like, "philosophize" and then "philosophically." <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. It hurts my.
0: Heart. You're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable.
1: Ah. Uh, yes. yes. There's Julian. That's my hair. Oh, is this oh, Yeah, he's the one with the dark hair. Okay. He looks fabulous. Yeah.
0: Like, you see the girl wearing her lab goggles? No. Over there.
1: Aww. Oh, nice. So we found out the other day that one of the girls that works at the Adventures, she's a marine biologist. Okay. Yeah. We were just like, oh. She's like, yeah. I work here because I get a free membership. like, that's really smart, actually. <laughs>
0: And also, she works for FWC, which doesn't pay. Much. This is what democracy looks like. <laughs>